0: as we stand, let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you. Lead us by your spirit and teach us to be faithful to you. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Colin Bearup began his excellent sermon, asking if anyone knew what Timcat was. Way back, I lived and worked in Ethiopia, and I thought by way of introduction, I'd like to you to see a couple of pictures of the colorful celebrations I remember so well. Timcat celebrates the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River. This may seem rather strange, but during the ceremonies of Timcat, the tabot, a model of the Ark of the Covenant from each church, is wrapped reverently in rich cloth and processed on the head of the priest. In the region of Lalibela, high in the Simeon Mountains, there are amazing rock-hewn churches. And beginning the celebrations the evening before everyone heads to rivers or pools of water about two o'clock in the morning. The water's then blessed and then sprinkled on the participants. Then some of them enter into the water to renew their baptismal vows before partaking in the main festival the following day. Well, that's by way of introduction. Last week, Um, we considered how Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And as he was praying, the heavens opened. The Holy Spirit visibly descended on him, anointing him for his public ministry. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What affirmation for Jesus. And now, in chapter 4, verse 1, you may like to open your Bibles at page 1030, 1030, to chapter 4. And we read in the first verse, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the desert. A mountainous, dusty, and arid place. It was here that the human nature of Jesus was tested. And although Jesus was fully God, he was born fully human and just as vulnerable as we are. He was no superhero, he was led by the Spirit into the desert where he spends almost six weeks alone with God, fasting and praying in preparation for his public ministry. But this is more than an extended retreat or a pilgrimage. The Spirit leads Jesus into the desert with the expressed purpose of engaging with the enemy, the devil. The devil, or Satan as he's called later, is not just a symbol of depravity or corruption. He is the real enemy of God, an intelligent, powerful spirit being who is thoroughly evil and constantly trying to thwart God's good purposes by perpetrating evil in the lives of both individually individuals and on a much big, bigger worldwide scale, as we will remember. With the awful atrocities um, with uh, the anniversary tomorrow of the Holocaust um, that, that we remember this week, but there are other things that are going on now that are as horrific um, in Congo um, and in Syria. this was the first skirmish that Jesus actually had with Satan as he, Satan tries to halt the advance of the kingdom of God. It's not a full frontal attack, but a, this rather a clever ruse of the devil to try and sidetrack Jesus from focusing on God's will. What is temptation? We all perhaps all realize that we know what it is, but it's, no, it's important to note here that the word in Greek, the word used tempt, Can also be translated text, test. A temptation is is an enticement to get a person to act contrary to God's will, as Satan will try to do to Jesus. But scripture is clear in James chapter 1 and verse 13 that God never tempts anyone to do evil. But what God does do is to use the circumstances to test a person's character. But it is with a very good intention of strengthening their faith and um, commitment to God. You may think of Job in the Old Testament, who went through terrible loss and suffering, And yet at the end, he came through with a deeper commitment and understanding of God. A biblical test is a bit like hammering a stake into the ground and then getting hold of it and giving it a jolly good wobble to see if it actually will shift. It's been suggested that temptation and testing are flip sides of the same coin, Satan intends to get Jesus to go contrary to God's will, but the Father turns Satan's evil intention into a good purpose, that of strengthening Jesus for his saving mission. And we also have to remember that Satan cannot act independently of God because God is in control of both the tempter and all of the circumstances. And scripture tells us that God will never allow a person to be tempted beyond what he or she is able to endure without providing a way out. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. So temptation in the hands of Satan becomes a test in the hands of God. Jesus' confrontation with the devil at the onset of his public ministry, is no coincidence. So let's look more carefully at the temptations of Jesus and see what we can learn from them. Jesus' first temptation. The devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus had been in the desert for 40 days, He'd eaten nothing, and he was very hungry. How often Satan tempts us when we're at our lowest physically. He's wily, he's clever, and he knows just where we're weakest. And that's precisely when and where he will tempt us. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the devil comes to challenge what God has said. God had clearly said at Jesus' baptism, you are my son. And Satan says, if you are the son of God. And he repeats it for the th- third temptation as well in verse 9. So what's he doing? Satan doesn't doubt it. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. <clears throat> Nor does, is he trying to get... Jesus to doubt it. His overall intent is to manipulate Jesus, to get Jesus to misuse his gifting as the Son of God. He's almost flattering him, trying to trick him into going contrary to the Father's will for him. We know that Jesus has the power to produce bread for he later miraculously divides five small loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people. A temptation is not always trying to get a person to do something sinful. In other words, it's not a sin to turn stones into bread. But it would have gone against the father's will for the son. God's plan at that time was that Jesus should fast and rely on God's word to sustain him. So Jesus responds by quoting from the Old Testament scriptures from Deuteronomy chapter three, man does not live on bread alone. And that verse continues, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There's a link here between Jesus' temptations in the desert and Israel's experience in the desert. I wonder if Jesus had been thinking about it as he spent that time. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he did. In Deuteronomy 8, which Alan read earlier, Moses reminds the people of Israel that God had led them in the desert for 40 years to test them And one of those tests was to go through hunger and to rely on God's miraculous provision of basic food, of manna. The Israelites should have believed God's promise that he would provide for them. Even when they were in that bleak and barren place, they needed to trust in God's word. And the first temptation gets right to the core of Jesus' personal trust in God's leading and in his protection. I wonder if that's where God is testing you. Do you believe in God's leading, in his protection? Despite his hunger, Jesus doesn't need to turn stones into bread in order to confirm his identity or to supply his needs. God has declared that he loves him. The Spirit had led him into the desert, so he must trust the Father, even though his body was absolutely crying out for food. Compare for a moment this temptation of Jesus with that of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, the first man, gave to temptation resulting in the punishment of death for him and for his descendants. Jesus, on the other hand, resisted the temptation to satisfy his physical craving, and his victorious encounter on this and other occasions qualified him as the sinless son of man to bear our sins and bring us new life. I think somewhere here there's an indication that victory over temptation brings a greater fullness of life. Think about it. Victory over temptation brings a greater fullness of life. So the first temptation we see, how the devil tries to sidetrack Jesus from following the Father's will, but the Spirit helps him to resist and God sustains him by his word. And the key for us when facing temptation is to ask that question, what, Lord, do you want me to do right now? What course of action will honor you? What do you want me to do right now? Temptation is a bit like a slippery slope. Um, I gave my great-nephew, my youngest great-nephew, one of those old toys for Christmas, which was a wooden um, slope with little pegs in it and a man that ran down. You put it in the top and it ran down. Some of you would have had something like that when you were small. Well, temptation's a bit like that. If you get past the first rung, it, it's much harder to stop, much harder to resist. So Jesus' second temptation. If the first one was a personal one, the second one is more of a universal one. Luke chapter 4 and verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will... All be yours. Here in Jesus' second temptation, the devil offers Jesus all the wealth of the world as a shortcut to gain his kingdom. If only Jesus will bow down and worship him. Humanly speaking, it's a cruel enticement. Those kingdoms the devil offers and which he falsely claims he owns are the very reason Jesus had laid aside his glory. His ultimate purpose in coming to earth was to gather all nations into the kingdom of God. But before that happens, and Jesus sits on his throne, he has to hang on a cross and has to die for us, bearing the sins of the world. It was a daunting prospect for Jesus So much so that later we hear him um, in the Garden of Gethsemane crying out, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. For Jesus, this temptation to a shortcut to his kingdom must have been very real. And Satan's demand for Jesus to worship him shows Satan's true intention Satan wants to supplant God. That's what he always wants to do. And what better prize than to have the Son of God giving him honor? But Jesus refuses to shortcut God's will and bow the knee to Satan. Jesus will only worship and serve God. And again, Jesus quotes from God's word, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, Worship the Lord your God. And serve him only. As we come to worship this morning, worshipping God is a tangible demonstration that a person has given over their life to God's will and not their own. Yesterday, I met someone who said, We've given up going to church, but we still believe. I wonder what that actually says about his faith. And I feel that he's in a very vulnerable position. From Jesus' second temptation, we learn two things. There's no shortcuts to the kingdom of God. As Jesus had to follow through the plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, so we do too. We come to God only through Jesus Christ when we accept him as our Savior and Lord. And the second thing we learn is we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and Satan. Either we serve God or we serve Satan. Moving on to Jesus' third temptation. The devil somehow leads Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest part of the temple which rises some 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. A dizzying height. How did he do this? Was it through a vision like that of Ezekiel in the Old Testament? We don't know, really. However, the temptation was very real to Jesus, as was his response. And Satan urges Jesus to throw himself down in order to prove his confidence in his father's protection. And he also tries to catch Jesus out by quoting scripture at him. He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, implying that if scripture's to be believed, then God would send his angels to lift him up so that he'd not even hurt his foot on a stone. It must have been tempting for Jesus to comply with Satan's proposal. For Jesus knew he had miraculous powers. Remember that prior to his crucifixion, Jesus said that if he wanted, he could call on his father to rescue him by sending more than 12 legions of angels. But Jesus also knew that God does not condone willful sins or testing providence. In fact, The next verse in Psalm 91, verse 13, actually clearly condemns it. So the devil's quotation is a blatant misuse of scripture, wanting Jesus to test his father in two ways by intentionally putting himself in harm's way, and secondly, by making such a spectacular display that he'd get an instant messianic following rather than following God's way of proclaiming the kingdom and actually suffering the consequences. So in this temptation, Jesus is challenged to confirm his relationship with God the Father. The Father had declared his love for Jesus at his baptism, and for Jesus, that was enough. In this way, Jesus models the essence of biblical faith. We're told, be holy as God is holy. And Jesus took God at his word and was obedient to it without requiring further confirmation. So Jesus answers authoritatively, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And with that, the devil leaves him. Through all these temptations, Jesus shows himself to be the sinless Son of God who is uniquely qualified to bear the sins of others. He is faithful to the leading of the Holy Spirit and obedient to the will of God. And while Jesus' temptations were unique to his mission of bringing in the kingdom of God, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus understands the whole gamut of uh, temptations which catch us unawares as we walk with God. I want you to think for a moment. What is the source of your most common personal temptation? What is the source of your most common personal temptation. We're so easily tempted through the lust of our eyes, through food, through drink, through sex, through the desires of our minds, perhaps the desire for wealth or popularity, through our responses in what we say or do that may not be honoring to the Lord. And Peter says in his first letter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. As a follower of Jesus, it's my desire to live in awe of God, putting him and others first. And that takes discipline. And I certainly frequently fail. But I can come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and start afresh. So may I commend you, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we follow Jesus, let us live in awe of God. As Jesus did. Let us keep in step with the Spirit, as Jesus did, so that when we're faced with temptation, we're able to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? Let us stand firm on God's Word. Let us know it. Let us read it. Let us be there in our minds so we can use it as the sword of the Spirit, as Jesus did, and be obedient to it. And when we do fail, let us come to Jesus, our great high priest, in repentance and faith, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Again, just recall what is the source of your personal temptation, your most common personal temptation. And let ask the Lord to help you, by His spirit, to resist that. And to put God first and be obedient to His word. Lord, you have wonderfully created us in Your image and yet more wonderfully restored us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as He came to share our human nature and to be tempted as we are, so help us to live in holiness and in our awe of God, to the praise of your name. Amen.